Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking about the persecution and discrimination against Christians across Europe, how people are dealing with the lockdown there, and what we can learn about persecuted Christians during the time of the pandemic. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Ellen Vantini of the Observatory for Discrimination and Intolerance Against Christians in Europe. I actually met with her at the National Conservatism Conference last year in Washington, D.C., and then I met up uh, to discuss a lot of these things with her in Vienna last fall after I attended the March for Life there. She works for an organization that takes a look at what's going on with Christians across Europe. Is discrimination increasing there? What is actually going on in regard to persecution? What is up with all of the arsons against churches in France, for example? And she joined me to discuss all of these things as well as uh, how she is coping with the lockdown in Europe and what this pandemic can teach us about persecuted Christians. Here's that conversation. First question, maybe introduce our listeners and our viewers to your work. Uh, when did you found this organization? What was the thinking behind it? And, and how have you uh, really started to raise awareness about the subject of persecution in Europe? Sure. Well, the, the Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe was founded. I, I was not the founder. Um, the founders began it um, about 10 years ago. And... Um, it was originally founded just as a project, not even as an, an observatory, but mm. as a project to look at, um, to, to do a survey of Europe and find out what, if any, laws, either directly or indirectly, um, uh, impact Christians in a negative way. And so right. that could be anything from not having conscientious objection protections for certain professions, all the way to, uh, let's say, church registration laws, and so that whole range. And uh, what what they found was really shocking. There were, I think, 46 different laws across Europe that had a negative impact either um, in their inception or in their application, Right. Um, negative impact against Christians. So having discovered that, they prepared, um, they prepared a publication that, that outlined all of that, and that's available on our website in the publications section. I'll give you the, um, the website name uh, later. Uh, as a result of that, and having done that research, they kept on running into incidents, um, incidents ranging from uh, hate crimes against Christians, both individuals and uh, Christian buildings, institutions, anything from vandalism to threats to physical violence against people. And then this kind of range of hostilities and marginalization that Christians experience. Right. And so some of them are legal. Some of them are social marginalization. Um, certainly the, uh, the, the questions that we've seen in the U.S. and in Canada about Christian business owners and what, um, what they're able to do and not do in terms of um, uh, saying yes or no to customers. Mm -hmm. um, and... 
And so as a result, the observatory was founded to collect this information, okay. to have a repository, because there is no, uh, there is no other repository for pan-European um, information about Christians. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why we collect this information is because the, um, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe every year collects hate crime data. Right. Hate crimes against any number of different groups, from anti-Semitism to um, xenophobia and, um, and racist, uh, biased violence. And um, there was nobody reporting on hate crimes against Christians. And right. although, right, so, so although what we submit as a civil society organization is considered to be hate incidents, right? Because we're not, we're not the police, we're not a government. So it's not considered hate crimes, but they collect this information from us and from others. And it helps to provide a picture about what's going on in, in, in Europe. Um, of course, it's very hard to know uh, whether what we're reporting is comprehensive. We, right. we, we, like to, we like to say that we report the visible tip of the iceberg. Right. So, so um, we collect information based on media reports, based on eyewitness, eyewitness uh, testimony. Uh, people send us incidents or photographs of, of vandalism that they've seen, and we do our best to investigate uh, everything that we report, either by seeing if there's a credible media source that's reported it, um, perhaps triangulating it, the information if it doesn't seem um, complete enough for us. And we're, we're very careful to, to be as, um, as cautious about, about our data as we can be because our credibility is really on the line there. Right. So, um, so, so we produce annual reports, both talking about the trends that we've seen, perhaps discussing a, a specific special issue, mm-hmm. if we see that, it, that it's emerging. And then we also provide um, all of the cases, a, a breakdown of all of the cases we've um, reported in that year. So like taking a look at, at a few things here, when you say you try to at least help ensure that there is a more accurate picture of what's going on in the ground on the ground in Europe, there's a lot mm-hmm. of, I think, uh, among among people who only read books on the hot button issue. So let's say Douglas Murray's The Strange Death of the West or before that, it would be America Alone by Mark Stein. Um, right. That gives part of the picture. It, it, it sort of pinpoints the strain that European society has been under due to the migrant crisis of 2015 and prior to that because of, of, of immigration from, from other cultures. Yeah. So you have um, cultures that mix together like oil and water, figuring out how to coexist with each other. From your perspective, with the research that your organization does, what, what does it look like on the ground in Europe, giving us a general picture? Right. Well, so Christians in Europe were under a great deal of pressure before the, let's say, wave of, of, of migration in 2015, 2016. So even before that, uh, Christians were under pressure, I would say, by, let's say, more of the the secularist or mm-hmm. um, uh, anti-religious uh, interest groups, whether right. they whether they see Christianity as an organized religion that should be dismantled, whether they see Christianity and Christian institutions as 
representative of the patriarchy or um, for the for the anarchists, perhaps um, a, a symbol of authority. Um, so certainly, certainly, the the Christian Church generally has been a lightning rod for uh, for any number of ideologies, and this was this was certainly true before we had an enormous um, influx of of people from other cultures, mm-hmm. particularly the, in um, people arriving from from uh, Muslim cultures bringing their religion, but also, um, very interestingly, uh, there there are also a lot of Christian refugees who became Christian either as they were fleeing, before they fled, or upon arrival. Right. Uh, So, so converts from Islam to Christianity. And we we, we dedicated uh, one of our annual reports to this issue because because it is so important mm-hmm. because I think it's it's the closest we can come to what what is the popular understanding of persecution, which right. is really um, that that idea that a person might be killed or right. tortured right and although although there are there are, um, accepted definitions of persecution that are much broader, so any negative treatment as a result of one's association with Christ or the church is a definition of persecution. We don't tend to use that at the observatory because I think it's confusing for for people who are very concerned with the plight of Christians outside Europe. So we try not to use that term to describe what's happening for Christians inside Europe. But so Christian refugees, we, we saw both their their flight or um, their their asylum claims because in fact they were per- facing persecution death for apostasy in the countries they were fleeing. Once they got to Europe in the 2016 timeframe, they were put in accommodation homes with the same people from whom they were fleeing right. uh, in, in many ways, and so the, these uh, culture clashes were then concentrated into very small spaces where everyone was under a lot of pressure and, and Christians really uh, were, be, were being persecuted here in Europe in these places in the refugee homes that were supposed to be their safe havens. Mm-hmm. Additionally, um, a number of people uh, converted once they arrived in Europe and that was, that was met with some skepticism from a lot of people who said, oh, you know, isn't that convenient? Now they want to be Christians so that w- they won't be deported. But of course, anybody who understands the <laughs> dynamics will understand that there's nothing convenient about being a Christian when you leave a religion um, as under a religion, a religion and religious tradition that understands conversion as apostasy uh, and that should be punished by death. So for these Christians, not only did they have to probably study Christianity and do Bible studies underground. It hidden, hidden, hiding their Bibles, going to places, um, not showing their chain, their cross necklaces. Mm-hmm. So nothing convenient about either their conversion experience or what happened once they became a Christian. So, so we saw in, in, in fact, in, in Vienna, Austria, where I'm, where I'm based, the, the, initiation rite for catechumens to enter the Catholic Church 
has gone from a public joyful ceremony in the cathedral to an event that is joyful but not public. There, it's in a, a secret location. Um, it's not in the cathedral. Only the priests, their catechumens, and um, and their sponsors know where the event is. And only up until the day of the event does anybody know where it is. Oh wow! And this this is in Vienna, Austria, and this is true. This is true all over all over Europe, uh, because it's so dangerous. So so from our perspective, um, it it's very unlikely that there are right. a lot. Of course, you know, there are bad apples everywhere. Mm-hmm. But um, so, so in fact, uh, Open Doors uh, commissioned a survey in Germany uh, just last year. We reported it in October. 6,500 converts, 6,500 converts were surveyed to find out what their experience was like once they'd gotten here and had applied for asylum. And it turns out that it's a lottery. It, I mean, it's, it's worse than a lottery because um, govern, government officials either don't believe that the conversion was genuine, and so this is when we've heard about using sort of Bible trivia or highly complex theological questions that I think even someone who is a, a Christian from birth might have trouble um, answering. Or even if they do believe that they're Christian, they don't believe that they face a genuine risk of persecution upon deportation. And so we've seen that in Germany. We've seen that in Sweden. We've seen that in Austria. We've seen that in the UK. And in fact, our most recent newsletter outlines the the plight of one Christian convert who's about to be deported. And he's sure he he will be killed if he's returned uh, to Iran. Yeah. And is it fair to say that they wouldn't be doing this if the person was a Shia being sent to a Sunni majority place or, or, or to a member of the Baha'i faith? Like so often it seems that because Christianity, after it largely shifted from east to west, because it was considered mm-hmm. to be a part of the original sin of the West, that the West is a lot more comfortable um, directing its criticism at Christians and dismissing Christian claims of persecution mm-hmm. simply because they're trapped in this binary view of the oppressor and the oppressed. And, and to say that a Christian is being oppressed doesn't fit the worldview of most of, uh, of most of those at the European union, for example, uh, right. in, in many government yeah. places. I, cause I've had that a lot, a lot, but they're like, no, the Christians are the homophobic transphobic. Like they're the people that we're trying to sort of do away with. They're the people that are, are, are um, making Hungary more authoritarian. They're the people trying to pass pro-life laws in Poland, right. right? They're not, they're not oppressed. They're the people that we're fighting. And so they can't actually escape this binary and understand that the sorts of people you're highlighting are at very real risk of being killed if they go back to their homeland. Right. I, well, I think that's right. And, um, and to be honest, I mean, I think people are willing to understand uh, the plight of a Christian refugee if you talk them through why they were fleeing. Right. Um, so, so I mean, I think people are are, are willing to accept that. I, I do think that you're correct that the concept of of Christians um, as as victims, let's say, uh, really conflicts with the worldview of um, minority majority and the idea that anyone who may have been, I wouldn't say continues to be in, in some of these countries, but may have been a majority religion. Right. Um, uh, 
that, that it's just inconceivable that they could be victimized in any way. And then you add in sort of these ideas of colonialism or uh, power dynamics. And so you're, you're right. Uh, people have a very hard time understanding um, that, that, that Christians can be victims of, of intolerance, discrimination, mm -hmm. and persecution. But I also think, and this is not, I mean, some people are, are honest enough to, to articulate it, but I do think that there's a bit of a, an undercurrent of, well, maybe they had it coming. So, right. in fact, you know, it, it's, been de it's been described, prejudice against Christians will end up being the last acceptable prejudice because, mm -hmm. because of this idea that, that, that it's impossible to victimize a majority religion. Well, it really struck me because I've, I've been reading through your reports for, for some time now. And, and mm -hmm. I noticed that the, what you highlight the, the discrimination, like the full range um, directed against Christians, it comes from either the hypersecularists, which you referred to earlier on in our conversation, right? So this would be a lot of the sort of the sixties revolutionaries types and, and their, uh, their ideological descendants at this point. Um, these are the mm -hmm. people, right. Who are trying to shut down, you know, a little old lady who sells flowers because she doesn't want to create an arrangement that celebrates a relationship. She morally disapproves of, for example. Um, right. Or saying that somebody who does refuses to use sort of recently invented transgender pronouns because he he or she objects to compelled speech, um, mm -hmm. that that person now has to face the full brunt of either social disapproval or in some cases the law. And then on the other hand, and I I know people who have personally experienced this, um, mm -hmm. right? There's women uh, who get called horrible names by, by, by Muslim migrants or immigrants or refugees because of, mm. uh, of how they're dressed, because they're not wearing, um, a headscarf, for example. And it seems if you read the two types of reports that, 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 that you folks often publish, um, you have the, the secularist, uh, radicals, and then you have, um, you know, these, these, uh, these people coming from other cultures who are in many cases, they think that the way they're behaving is normal because that's how they would have behaved back in their country rather than the idea that they're or intentionally doing something. It seems that the situation in Europe involves Christians sort of being trapped in these pincers between those who are coming in to replace their culture and the secularists who own the countries. You mentioned that um, the minority-majority idea doesn't work anymore. I believe it's Italy right now that has the highest number of of Christians who go to church at least once a month, and they bear they 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 don't even they don't even approach a quarter of the population. Right in Canada, eighty nine percent of Canadians don't attend worship services regularly and that's any religion, okay. right? So Christians are a minority, but it seems that they sort of get, are getting squeezed by the people that are coming in and replacing what was once a Christian culture. And then from the top down by those who have been doing away with the Christian culture for a half century. What do you make of that? Right. No, I, th I mean, I think, I think that's right. And I think, I think imagining pressure coming from, from two sides that would otherwise probably not really have that much in common. Right. Um, but, but when, when, when you have, let's say a common target, uh, then, then, then it's made, let's say strange bedfellows in the mm -hmm. sense that, um, that the, the secularists and for, for lack of a better term, because I mean, I think it is important to say that um, the majority of Muslims in, in Europe have have no interest in persecuting Christians. They just want to live their lives. For sure. But I would say um, 
particularly when it comes to um, Muslim background Christians, Muslim background converts, uh, that that microcosm of of pressure in in a neighborhood or in a society really is 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 too much for many of them to handle, and they really have to flee. Um, and 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 that's true. That's true in Europe, and that's true in their countries of origin. But this idea that um, you have you have Islamist activists, let's 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 call it that, and then the hyper secularists, kind of cheering each other on, um, maybe not explicitly always, but this idea that, well, you know, the Christians had it coming or the churches have been in power for far too long. And, and, and I think that that's, that's a serious problem because, because of course, Europe and the European countries really do have backgrounds of, of freedom. They have constitutions that, support um, freedom, not exactly in the same way as constitutions in North America, but, but for example, when we think about, um, we'll talk about very current events, which is that everybody's on lockdown in Europe, mm-hmm. and, um, and church services in most countries in Europe at this point are prohibited either by um, the, the, the religious let's say, orders um, themselves or mm-hmm. by the government or by saying, well, 10 people can't be, ten or more than 10 people can't be gathered together in a room. Um, they, more than 10 people can be together in a supermarket. But, um, but, but so, so, so Christians don't even have uh, the, the refuge of, of, of a church service these days here in Europe. And um, I'll, I'll be interested to see whether whether that strengthens mm. Christians' faith, wh- whether they grow hungry for it, or whether they say, "I guess it's not that bad," um, I think I think that that'll be very interesting. I would also be very interested in seeing if there are going to be any constitutional challenges, uh, legal challenges uh, to these laws. Saying, "Look, um, the Constitution allows for freedom of association and." Um, religious expression, religious freedom, if you keep us from our worship services, whether that's in a mosque, a synagogue, or a church building, that's a violation of our constitutional rights and our rights as Europeans. That point is being made by almost nobody except for, I believe, Peter Hitchens over Mm -hmm. at the Mail on Sunday. Um, (laughs) I have to say I was mildly amused reading his comments opposing these because it said, Peter Hitchens is the sort of guy who says the world is ending until everybody else says it. And then he's like, come on, it's not that bad. Right. Um, I think this is, this is why he gets called a contrarian, but it's, it's sort of interesting in this time. And I'll, and I'll fire this question at you and you can deflect it if you'd like, but I'm just sort of curious. What do you think happens to the strange alliance uh, between radical secularists and then the Islamist activists using um, um, your phraseology when the well, Christianity vanishes to the point where it's not a target worth worth going after? So I'll give you an example, uh, a recent example that prompts this question in the UK. Um mm-hmm. It's primarily now uh, uh, Muslim immigrants who are opposing uh, LGBT education uh, and and specifically like this education is, 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 you know, boiling all the way down to explaining to kids that gender isn't a real thing. It's a social construct, et cetera. It's both not a real thing and you can choose your own. Go figure. Uh, But it's interesting that the media doesn't really know what to do. 
um, with these imams and these parents because these imams and these parents are coming forward and they're saying exactly what I would say if it was my kid in school. I agree with virtually every word coming out of their mouth. Uh, and so, but you haven't yet seen common cause between Muslim parents and Christian parents, partially because this is the UK and the Church of England was colonized a long time ago. Uh, but you also don't have the media um, throwing the same rhetorical bombs at the at the Muslims that they would have at the Christians, right? Suddenly, homophobe and transphobe is not being bandied about quite so enthusiastically. They're very careful about how they word it because they they know if they say, well, they just don't understand yet, they sound patronizing and that's racist. But if they call them a transphobe, then they're going to be ignoring the diversity of opinion and the beauty of multiculturalism. And so it, it, I'm just interested to, to, to know what you think happens next because the christians in places like the uk are such a minority that they're more or less sidelined there's the group christian concern which puts out some good stuff but they don't have the clout or the numbers that some of the the islamic leaders do so what happens when the the target in between the secularists and the and the um, islamic activists are gone and they're just facing each other with all of the baggage they've accumulated over the last 25 years well, I think I think the example you gave is perfect. So um, the the parents in Birmingham um, with their signs mm -hmm. saying the same thing that um, conservative Christian families would would hold up, but but for the media, for the media in particular, but also just for the person on the street, the optics don't make sense mm -hmm. because they they ruin the narrative. They ruin the narrative in the sense that it's only it's only the 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 conservative Christians who are really off the wall and hate human rights and so on and so on. That that's the narrative. So what do you do when you when you see these um, these Muslim families saying we want better for our kids and you don't get to decide how we parent them and you don't get to decide what kind of sexual education, relationships education they get, and we're not going to stand for this. The and they're accusing them of ideological colonization on top of it, which to somebody like myself watching this is just, it's a, it's a fair, it's a rather beautiful irony to watch that accurate because it's both true and it's exactly the sort of thing that, that, that uh, the left is very sensitive about. Right. Right. And, and there have been examples in, in some of these towns. I mean, to, to be honest, a lot of times there are, um, there are neighborhoods or suburbs or, um, even whole cities that tend to have Muslim majority or Christian majority. And so you don't end up seeing a lot of, um, Muslim parents and Christian parents. Right. And by the way, also, um, Jewish parents who, who all believe the same thing. That's right. The rabbis about, will go as well. Exactly. And so, so, I mean, these are, these are opportunities to talk. I mean, everyone wants to talk about interreligious dialogue, mm -hmm. except if it's um, a Christian clergyman, a rabbi and an imam all saying, don't, Put this ideology on our children and then people don't want to hear those united voices so i mean i think that there those are where the real opportunities are mm -hmm. and and i think i think the left says well we'll we'll put up with it because well in the end it, it, it's it's their culture but they just don't understand why a christian would feel the same way and and frankly um i think 
because because um, the num the number of 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 Jewish believers and communities in Europe is fairly small. That's a, a minority voice that that's strong on some of these issues, but doesn't have the the same kind of power. So yes, I agree with you that um, this is where people get very confused. Mm -hmm. So I want to yeah. take a look at a few things that um, get get hurt, like we hear a lot about in North America, and I'd like mm -hmm. your perspective on them because this is the sort of thing that you study. So first, we hear a lot about the the sort of kidnappings in Norway, the over enthusiastic child services taking kids away from their parents, and we hear a lot that there's a religious element to this. We had actually on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, the mother of the three children um, who, who were taken away last year and who's currently fighting to get them back. And I want to know what your perspective, um, living in Europe and, and following these things closely, is there a religious element to what's going on in Scandinavia or is this just an over-enthusiastic government agency? We know it's a tragedy either way, but I, I'd like to know what you think about the religious aspect of all of this. <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think in... It, it's very clear in some of those cases in Norway, even if it's not an explicit um, reason why children might be vulnerable for um, for social services to take them away, there is kind of an undercurrent uh, when, especially when the, the families are Christian. There's an undercurrent of well, maybe they're too strict with their children. Maybe they're teaching right. them things that we don't, that, that we as Norwegians think shouldn't be taught. Mm. And so, although in some cases it was fairly explicit, I think it's, it's more an undercurrent, um, a bias, a prejudice. Um, it, it certainly doesn't go in the family's favor if they are right. conservative Christian family. That's for sure. Um, and I think also across Europe, we see, for lack of a better way to describe it, a, an illiteracy when it comes to religion and faith generally, mm. especially in Scandinavia, but really across Europe. And so this is the same reason why uh, government officials do Bible trivia rather than understanding someone's conversion experience. This is why when a parent is Christian and chooses to homeschool, why they're the target of government interference where, let's say, if they had a different ideology that led them to want to homeschool, they probably would be kind of ignored or, mm -hmm. or allowed to do that. So I, I think that there is this religious illiteracy or lack of understanding of what faith means and that it doesn't start and stop on maybe a, on a holiday or a Sunday morning, but rather is... Um, integrated into a person's life and a family's life and informs the choices they make, how they make decisions for their family about a whole wide range of topics. Right. And uh, governments um, and bureaucrats don't seem to understand that very well. I think that's, that's a problem. That leads yeah. me uh, into the second thing I was going to ask about, um, especially because homeschooling is such an enormous movement in the United States. It's over 3 million mm -hmm. strong. Uh, and so we've all heard the stories about what happened to homeschoolers in Germany, for example. But I know this is one of the things your organization has looked at. So what is the state of of parental rights, especially as it pertains to Christians in Europe? Well, yeah, I mean, homeschooling, the homeschooling regulations and laws vary from country to country. And I would say also vary from um for for how they're enforced 
So there might be countries that say homeschooling is allowed. For example, Austria, Um, homeschooling is allowed, but uh, the child must then um, have tests in German. So if you're an American family or a Canadian family or any um, family that doesn't speak German, doesn't teach their children in German because you're trying to uh, keep their maybe native language or maybe they're here temporarily, um, then then it's illegal. So then people face fines for homeschooling their children if the children can't pass these tests in German. Um, I think... I think in North America, in the U.S. in particular, homeschooling really underwent a cultural shift, and in its in its beginnings, really weren't um, because of religion, but rather, in fact, saying a rejection of the the conventional uh education system in the US. Right. And so it was an it, it was an interesting mix of let's say um kind of back to the land leftists joining up with mm-hmm. traditional tradi- traditionalist Christian families um and and saying okay we can agree to this which is that uh, decisions about a child's upbringing, including education, starts with the family, that the family is, in fact, the first educators, and that they should be able to make decisions for their own families about what's best for their kids. And so I think in, 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 uh, in the U.S., they found a way to work together that was very, very effective. And um, it doesn't mean that they're running... Um, you know, I know book clubs together, but it means that they're st- they're sticking up for one another and and the family's rights. Mm-hmm. I think in I think that in Europe, nearly across the board, there isn't that same let's say activist culture, right. perhaps, and and so a lot of times I think families maybe they band together with some of their neighbors, maybe some of the people they go to church with. And they form these small alliances, but it's not as common to find, have these larger ideological alliances that really have a grassroots effect on, on some of these issues. Right, right. Yeah. Looking at, I want to pull on something you said earlier that, that really did strike me. Um, the idea that the majority in Europe no longer understand Christians, which is, I think, something that very few people... Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked about this with my my last guest as well, because in Canada, the, the number of people who've actually read the Bible is below 10%, right? So when we're talking about things like conscience rights, like people need to understand what the word conscience means before they can uh, understand what conscience rights are. But I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of an example a year and a half ago in the Netherlands when the Nashville statement, a number of Reformed pastors signed a statement basically upholding... Right the basic biblical definition of marriage and the whole country blew up for like a week and there was ministers getting like death threats. Um, and there was a lot of articles in mainstream newspapers where, 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 um, LGBT activists just said, we are surprised to know that there are still people who think this, right? They knew there was big churches that were packed with people. They knew that there was a a Bible belt in the Netherlands. Um, But they'd almost coexisted and ignored their existence to the point that they were stunned right. to find out people still thought the thing that everybody in the Netherlands had believed for the previous, well, you know, 50 years back and then a thousand years before, right? Right. 
So this right. is what all of Europe believed for 2,000 years in one form or another. Um, and every, every religious war would have involved two groups of people who agreed on marriage. And now we've got uh, uh, two generations out from that. We, they don't even understand. What, to what, like, does that contribute to what you see happening, this lack of understanding of what Christianity even is or means? Well, right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think when people don't understand what it means to have this deeply held belief, and even the, that, that phrase, deeply held belief, um, I, I, think, I think people don't really understand what that means. And that a deeply held religious belief, a moral belief, is something that someone is willing to suffer for. Right because they will not violate it. And I, I think more and more, especially, especially younger people, they, they just don't understand how you could be so committed to something that, that you'd be willing to suffer lawsuits, you'd be willing to suffer persecution, you'd be willing to suffer death in some cases. Um, so I, think, I, I mean, I think you're right. Um, but I also I also think it's it's this cynical idea, and really it is cynicism, fueled by the media that anytime someone invokes religious belief, um, deeply held moral or religious philosophical belief about something, uh, the cynicism that really it's just an excuse to discriminate against others right. or to restrict um, reproductive, reproductive rights. So for example, in our most recent newsletter, we posted about um, a United Nations report that was ostensibly to address gender-based violence and discrimination in the name of religion or belief, right? So the findings were that, that there are religions that, um, that in the name of the the tenets of that religion end up discriminating against women and therefore they are discriminatory and of course we can imagine that christianity was the biggest target mm -hmm. and so so the rapporteur this is the person who wrote the report uh criticized uh religious beliefs and the obligations that go along with those beliefs, such as um, the availability of reproductive medicine, is how the rapporteur would put it. Um, rather, so the rapporteur says, um, in some countries around the world, governments maintain partial or total bans on abortion, and religious figures in these countries have encouraged these measures. Well, right. So yeah. if... I'll, I'll give an example. If the Catholic Church says abortion is a moral evil that must be prevented, and you have a government um, or voters who believe that's true, then yes, they're going to vote with their conscience. So the special rapporteur for the United Nations says, look, abortion should be legal, it's health care for women, and if it's not, well, then these bigots are standing in the way of women's reproductive rights. And they shouldn't be able to use religion as an excuse. Um, and, and I mean, that just shows uh, how the, it, the illiteracy about what it means to have these deeply held beliefs 
breeds um, bigotry it informs of everything. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then if we talk about um, questioning gender ideology and whether that's good for kids or good for families or good for society, um, the rapporteur says, look, gender ideology is real. It's not pseudoscience. And if you question it, then you're just discriminating against people. So again, right. if you don't buy what people are selling, then you're a bigot and you're discriminating against women. And in fact, the, the argument is that you're contributing to the violence women experience, which is outrageous, of course. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to take a, a quick look at was I know that you're hesitant in using the word persecution. Uh, and the reason for that, of course, is because you see what's going on in North Korea yeah, where people can right. be executed for having a Bible, right? What yeah. happened in ISIS recently and, and thank God that they've been largely eliminated, but what they were doing with Christians. Yeah, um, right, right. I, I saw your, your, uh, your screen emoticon when we started our interview was the N for the Nazarene, the ISIS that was painted on Christian mm -hmm. doorways. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I, I saw a couple of months ago a report about the number of, of, of French churches that were being burned down, for example. So to what extent does this discrimination move from the sorts of laws that we're talking about and sorts of attitudes mm -hmm. that we're talking about on behalf of, of sort of the managerial elites and, and the, uh, the, the people that are running the international institutions mm -hmm. like the UN and the EU? Uh, and what, to what point does it, does it like spill over into vandalism, burning down churches and actual physical violence? Right. So, so the phenomenon of um, the vandalism of French churches that we reported last year, and there, there happened to be an enormous influx of them right before um, the, the fire at Notre Dame, uh, which we have no, no reason to think was anything other than a tragic fire, by the way, um, because lots of people asked me uh, about that because of the timing. And I, I have no reason. Um, I certainly don't have any more evidence than anybody else does. Right. Um, yeah, that was so my I'll, instinct I'll too when I heard it burn down. Was just right. okay, another one, right? Right, right, right. So, what? I mean, France in particular seems to be suffering from uh, intentional vandalism of of um, its churches, not not just vandalism, but really egregious. Um, fires, destruction and theft of sacred objects, things that are sacred to Christians, um, consecrated hosts from Catholic uh, churches being stolen, destroyed, thrown away, um, really going far beyond the idea of these are teenagers, these are bored teenagers, these are pranks, isn't it funny to try to steal something, isn't it? Or maybe the people trying to steal coins from an offertory box. What we're seeing is far beyond that. There's an anger. There's something really directed at the heart of the expression of Christian faith that, that seems to be the target of, of, of these incidents. And we see this in France. We're seeing it in Spain. We see it across Europe, but really uh, in, in France, it's, it, it's the toughest situation right now, I would say. And perhaps, I mean, perhaps... It's very hard to diagnose the reason why, but I would say that France also tends to have those two, those two forces 
that yes. both have Christian institutions in their sites for very different reasons. And so a radicalized Islamist sees a church as a symbol of the West, of Christians generally, and makes it a target. From the other side, let's call it from the radicalized left, then as I said at the very beginning of our conversation, churches and church buildings are the lightning rod for whatever your ideology is. Mm-hmm. Do we have any idea? So these churches are being burned down by both sides, by one side, or do we simply not know who most of the culprits are? Well, I'll back you up a little bit and say that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say churches being burnt down because that really does make it sound like there are hundreds of churches literally being burnt to the ground right. to, to, to cinders. Set I would say that there are, Yes, set on fire. I think that's um, um, a more responsible way to describe it. There are certainly that ha- there are certainly churches that have been intentionally burnt to the ground in Europe, um, but I would say the majority are um, intentionally set fires that cause a great deal of damage, but are are um, stopped short of complete destruction of the building. So anyway, um, making that little distinction. Uh, I, I would say I would say the destruction just it's it seems to be really rage filled. It really seems to be um, motivated by something more than mischief, but really anger. Mm. And um, it, and and it, I think it's also I mean hate crimes are generally described as message crimes, right? So you're both trying to destroy something, but you're also trying to send a message. And if the message is, you're not safe in your church, this, even this building isn't safe, you're going to have to spend a lot of money to secure it. You're going to have to get security cameras. You're going to have to get guards. But you're not safe. You as Christians are not safe. That's the message of these kinds of incidents. And um, to be honest, I think in some places it's working. Before I, I get to uh, what Vienna's like under lockdown, I, w- I guess my final question on, on on all of this is, where do you see this all going? From what we've seen, from the data I've looked at in the last six months, it seems like mm. year over year, um, the the decline of Christianity is more or less complete. And what, what I mean by more or less complete is that you've seen all the people who used to identify as Christian but no longer do slowly sort of trickle away. And so what you're left in, with in most countries is sort of a rump. Um, and, and the idea of it declining further than that, I think is, 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 is greatly exaggerated. So I think it's fair to say that in, in, in virtually every European country, you have a, a Christian minority, a very small one in most of the countries that we've talked about. Um, the, the debate on, on migration, immigration, refugees goes on, but it, it seems likely that immigration will, will consistently be necessary, um, as long as, as Europeans themselves aren't replacing mm-hmm. the population at all. And of course, secularism isn't going to burn out any time soon, unless of course, well, who knows what the world will look like six months from now. So I'll add that proviso to everything I just said. There's a lot of things we right. didn't think would be happening and, but who knows, but yeah. what do you see the landscape li- uh, looking like? 
going forward as you look at all the data that you've been collecting i know that um both yourself and your husband are, are keen analysts of, of european culture of, of of different uh the different directions some political movements are taking even so you 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 bring that to the table um setting aside for a moment what the world might look like after the coronavirus pandemic and the changes that that might um that might bring uh, how where do you see this headed overall well i, I actually I think I think I'm a, a slightly more optimistic than you are in some ways, and and it's funny to be in that position because I'm constantly gathering this information, mm -hmm. and really there there there's more there than I could than our organization could ever really collect right. uh, without having an army of people on the ground investigating everything. So so on the one hand, uh, one might assume that I'm uh, naturally and understandably pessimistic, but I'll say that there are there are glimmers of hope, and I do think that society may just get to a tipping point where they say, enough, this is absurd. Of course, parents can raise their children how they want to. It is absurd that our patrimony and uh, these, these glorious temples of our heritage, whether we're Christian or not, should not continue to be destroyed. I think people, um, Christian families and others are starting to say, stop. So, so for example, in France, where you have, where you have a very heavy, heavily secular society by design, Les Cités is by design a way to make sure that society um, respects the governmental secularism. Tens of thousands of families um, joining demonstrations and manifestations uh, relating to uh, expansion of reproductive um, technologies uh, beyond uh, married couples, this Manif Portu, and other, let's say, movements that are really grassroots. I, I, think, I think that they're having some success and really a, a groundswell because people have just said, okay, right. enough. This is absurd. This is absurd that that we can't stop teachers from using a different pronoun than the one we use at home for our six-year-old. Enough, as the Italians might say, basta. Yeah, enough. So, so although I'm I'm very concerned about the level uh, of violence um, in in these incidents, both against human beings and Christian buildings. I also see uh, opportunities for hope and for activism, not just for Christians, but for Europeans generally who say religion is a good in society. Even if I'm not a believer, it makes us all more right. civilized. And that's that's a good for our culture. So I, I, I have some hope. Um, but of course... We'll check back together in six months and see mm -hmm. see how we did. Well, I, I know who you're referring to. There is increasingly a large number of, of secularists who are saying, without Christianity, our society does not have the foundation right. necessary to respect human rights. Like, so we got, you know, right. Douglas Murray, who calls himself a Christian atheist. Roger Scruton, right. uh, before his death, had gone back to church, mm -hmm. even though he wasn't sure about the historicity of things like the resurrection. You've got Tom Holland, who just produced that book, uh, Dominion, in which he right. makes the historical case for why Christianity is necessary for, for human rights to be respected. And then, and I will admit that there was a bit of schadenfreude here, 
you have Richard Dawkins coming out and saying, maybe we should not get rid of Christianity as fast as I thought we should have, because we don't know what's going to replace it once it's gone. So I, I, I right. do see what you're saying there. Um, and my, my, na- my natural pessimism, which I have to admit has been groomed by the reports that I get, uh, I get from your organization. Um, there is still people that are saying things. If you, I guess if you had told me 10 years ago that Dawkins would be saying, uh, maybe we shouldn't get rid of Christianity. I would have said, wow, that's a really hopeful sign. So that's a, that's a fair enough reminder. Um, what are things like in Vienna right now on the ground? We're under lockdown uh, in, in Canada. All nine provinces have declared a state of emergency. Uh, the news from the U.S. changes daily. But as we know, the right. New York is the epicenter there. What are things like for you in Vienna? Well, so so Vienna, um, I will say uh, we... we imposed our own sort of lockdown, um, meaning in my family, right. uh, a few days before the government did. And the um, the government initially started, like like many, with, uh, let's say, social cool down in the, in the sense of, okay, only groups of 10, keep your social distance. Okay, now only groups of five. And then they finally said, look, stay at home. Stay safe, stay at home, just like just like in the United States, uh, with with of course the exceptions for for certain um, essential services. And my understanding um, was that there was a press conference uh, today with Sebastian Kurz, and that he added some more restrictive measures. I haven't briefed myself on those, but I would say the streets are very quiet. Um, People, people really are using social pressure, at least in social media, um, to, to remind one another that we have to do this, that mm-hmm. this is how we stay safe. Um, th- there are a limited number of, of uh, ventilators in, in Austria, although I think that there are more coming. But just like any place, I mean, it's, it's worth thinking of Austria as a, a province or a state in the sense that um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a small country right. um, and um, is, is doing a very good job, I think, of, of addressing this as quickly as possible, mm. closing borders where it, it needed to. And of course, um, it, it, it's under heavy criticism because of, um, because of the problems in the T-roll where uh, there was a concentration of, of infections, especially relating to a ski area. And, um, and and that that region, there were a couple of regions that were completely quarantined, meaning this is not social distancing. This is quarantines. You can't go anywhere. Right. Nobody right. in or out. Um, so so in fact, yesterday, no, on Saturday, uh, I was I was outside on the balcony and I heard a sound that I hadn't heard in a couple of weeks. And that was the sound of a plane <laughs> going overhead. Uh, and there's a there's a flight pattern over our apartment building that we've grown accustomed to. And so it was very strange. Uh, I imagine it was either a repatriation flight for Austrian citizens abroad, uh, which they've done a very good job. Um, The foreign um, ministry has done a very, very good job of arranging repatriation for any Austrians who want to come home. Otherwise, they'll have to shelter in place where they are. But I also think that there are some, um, some, some deliveries of of goods and and medicine um, or, or equipment, I mean, so so it's pretty quiet around here. It's certainly um, it's a good it's a good time to to do our work, but also reflect on um, you know what we're missing by not being able to go to mm-hmm. to, to church and and thinking about uh, our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world for whom 
going to church uh, has has right. been either non-existent or a luxury um, that they've been willing to die for. So, mm-hmm. so it, that, that's a good perspective as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Final question before I let you go. Where yes. can our listeners find your work? So we have a website, www.intoleranceagainstchristians.eu. Mm-hmm. Uh, www.intoleranceagainstchristians.eu. Um, and from there, you can see uh, the cases that we report. You can see news stories that might be interesting. There's also a publication section where you can see uh, reports from previous years, as well as books that have been written, um, partner organizations. And then we also have a Facebook page. Um, that's uh, OIDAC Europe. <laughs> Uh, and we also have the, the same um, on, on Twitter. And we try to use our social media pages not just to um, sort of publicize the cases that we are, have collected, but also to bring out maybe larger issues around the world, right. social issues that uh, that might be of interest to our readers. Well, Alan, thank you so much and, for taking the time. Sorry, one more thing. You can sign up for your very own mm-hmm. newsletter. Um, uh, there's a sign up uh, section on our website as well as on the Facebook page. So you can sign up to re- receive our newsletter. Which I do recommend to everybody. Uh, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Ellen Fantini of the Observatory for Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe. Thanks so much for joining us. If you want to check out past shows, head over to LifeSiteNews.com. Click on the podcast button. You'll find all of my past shows there. Uh, You can listen to this podcast on any of the podcast platforms that you use. And if you want to check out other daily news updates on important culture war issues happening around the world, head over to LifeSiteNews.com. And there is more than enough to keep you busy there. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you and your family are staying safe.